In both Matthew and Mark, Jesus is recorded as saying that he didn't know the day nor the hour of his return, but only the Father knew. So does this mean that the Father knows things that the Son does not? Well, stay with us to find out. to the question and answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, who for over 30 years answered the many questions of his listeners. We hope that you'll be able to pull up a chair to our table and join us for the next 30 minutes as we listen to the biblical answers to what might be one of your questions. This, of course, is a ministry of the Through the Bible Radio Network. Our first question comes to us from a listener in Barstow, California, who writes concerning Israel. He says, Will the whole nation of Israel be saved? Well, Paul made it very clear that all Israel is not Israel. Just to be a Jew and wear a little cap on top of your head doesn't necessarily mean that you're a real Jew. Paul said that today that the real circumcision are those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and rejoice in him and serve him. They are the real circumcision today. They are the real Israel today. So that even in their long history, it was only a remnant that served God. It never was the total nation. The total nation never did serve God. It was only the remnant that did. Poor Elijah, he thought he was the only one left that was serving God in his day. And the Lord revealed that there were... 5,000 others hiding up in those mountains were real believers, real Israelites. Now, I think there were a bunch of cowards hiding up there. Why didn't they take their stand with Elijah? But they didn't, and God didn't deny them either because they were hiding up there because they were true to, to him. That is, they wanted to be true to him and did not stand out in the open like Elijah did. And I don't want to sit in judgment of them because there are many of us today that are silent Christians, by the way. Now, it says one member of our Bible study insists that all the Old Testament Israelites will have another chance to be saved because of the reasons I mentioned above. Absolutely not. That is not true at all. It's an entirely incorrect conception of the nation Israel and who they are. Now, the rest of us believe that only those who come to Christ and accept him as their Savior will be saved. That's true today and will be part of his church. I think you're entirely accurate. And the argument is, what about the Old Testament promises that God made to Israel? Surely all his chosen people will be saved. Well, may I say to you, God's promises to Israel are going to be made good. The church is not in this world for too long a time, by the way. We've only been here 1,900 years, and I don't know how much longer we have. We have a few more hundred years. I don't know. I haven't been given a date. 
But regardless of that, the church, even at most, will not be in this world very long. Now, when God gets through with the church, when he calls out the last believer and takes the church out of the world, he's going to turn to the nation, Israel, again. And all the promises that God's made to Israel are to be made good, my friend. They'll all be made good. And there are a lot of them to be made good, too, by the way. You only mentioned very few of them. Revelation chapter 4 through the end of the book outlines several series of events, such as the breaking of seven seals, the sounding of seven trumpets, and the pouring out of seven bowls. So a listener in Culpeper, Virginia says, do these events follow in chronological order? And my answer to that is, not chronological sequence, but logical sequence. Because you see, you have a series of seven seals and seven trumpets and seven persons, and there is an overlapping of these. In other words, that which the seven seals covers, that is covered also by the seven trumpets only in a more enlarged and detailed manner and with a, another emphasis probably there. And that's true all the way through. But there is a chronological sequence in the fact that all of these series of sevens work you through the great tribulation period to the coming of Christ. Now, that is the only way that you can say that this is in chronological sequence. But as we said at the beginning of our study, that there's no book in the Bible that is so well organized and so easy to divide as the book of Revelation because of the fact it's just given to us in these very definite logical sequences, and most of them are chronological. If you understand that there's an overlapping of each one of the series of sevens. According to this person in Covina, California, there's a passage of Scripture which describes Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives. The mountain will split, Jesus will stay on the mountain, and the New Jerusalem will be located there as well. She says, Would you please tell me where I can find this passage in the Bible? Well, the Scripture that you have reference to is found in the 14th chapter of Zechariah. I do not know who you've been listening to, but there is more that you've got that's actually in the Scripture. It doesn't say, for instance, that the Lord Jesus is coming down to the Mount of Olives and staying there. It doesn't say that the church, the holy city, is going to come down where the mountain is rent, that it'll be there. If it is, it's going to be on water or underwater because... That is the area where the Dead Sea will be joined with the Mediterranean Sea. Now, the scripture you refer to, as we've said, is Zechariah, the 14th chapter, verse 4. And it goes on down through verse 7. And verse 4 begins, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half toward the south, and ye shall flee to the valley of the mountain 
for the valley of the mountain shall reach unto Azel, and so on. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day that shall be known to the Lord. And then it goes on with a further description in the passage of Scripture, and which I'll not read, but you've got partially correct, and the other part is added by somebody's figment of the imagination. It's not there, but that's the Scripture that you have reference to. Scripture says, The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So a listener in Kenansville, North Carolina says, I think this reference means that the Jews will be first at Christ's second coming because when he came the first time, they didn't know him. What do you think? Well, I just think that you're entirely wrong and that the scripture that you quote, which is Matthew, the 19th chapter, 29th and 30 verses, and I'll read it. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or fathers or mother or wife, or children, or lands for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now that scripture hasn't any reference at all the return of Israel back to the land at all. And it hasn't anything to do with them being chosen as a nation. And that scripture refers to the fact that they're going to be first. It has no reference to that whatsoever. You see, here is a case of taking scripture out of its context and making it applicable to another passage of scripture, which is totally unrelated. And therefore, may I say to you, I feel that you should not make that kind of connection, and that reveals the danger of taking Scripture out of context and interpreting it in another connection. That's the way that the statement is made, that you can make the Scripture prove anything you want it to. Well, you could do that with anything. You could take the dictionary and start putting words together from all over the dictionary, and you could come up with practically anything you'd want to say, but that's just not the way the dictionary is used, you see. And Scripture's not to be used like that, pulling a verse out here and pulling one out there and making the connection totally unwarranted. During the ministry of Jesus Christ here on earth, he often spoke of his second coming. Yet he made it clear that only the Father knew when the day would be, as mentioned in Mark 13.32. Considering this limitation of Christ, a listener in Forest, Virginia says, does this mean that the Father knows things that the Son does not know? May I say to you that he made this statement in Mark 13, verse 32. It says, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, nor the angels that are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Now, When he came to this earth and took upon himself our humanity, he assumed certain limitations that are human limitations. For instance, there were certain physical limitations. You remember the two sisters said, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. 
Now, he, as God, he's omnipresent. He's present everywhere. So that when he came to this earth and took upon himself our humanity, he limited himself to being in one place at a time. And he took other limitations that are self-limitations that he took that are human. And one was that as a human being down here on this earth, that even he did not know the time. But as he's sitting today at God's right hand, having returned back to the Father and is equal with the Father, he knows what the Father knows and he does know today. But when he was here, he assumed that. And if he is a man, assume that limitation, then may I say to you today, it's bold audacity for anyone to say they know the time or the hour the Lord's coming, or even they attempt to say what period that he'll come in. Well, may I say to you that again, you ought to be reminded of the fact that when he was here, he could say he did not know the day nor the hour, and he was a man, but he's also God. And when you today make the statement that you know that he was going to come in a certain period, well, may I say to you, that is almost blasphemy. You're assuming something that he did not assume. Well, may I say to you, that reveals again that there is a grave danger today of saying that Jesus is coming right away. I'm getting quite a few letters from people saying, well, there's no use doing anything about this, that, or the other because Jesus is coming soon. Well, how do you know he's coming soon? And suppose he did come soon. I want to be caught busy just doing the thing I was supposed to be doing. And I hope you feel that way, that his coming will have nothing in the world to do with the fact that you're going to be busy. I hope he finds me busy. I've always said, I hope the Lord has come when I'm in the pulpit speaking. And now I say, I hope I'll be making these tapes when he comes because I won't be in any trouble then. May I say to you, we don't know when he'll come, but we should be busy as if he is going to come tomorrow, but he may not come for many years. If you'd like to know more information about the Day of the Lord and prophecy, why not think about getting a copy of Dr. McGee's hardback book, J. Vernon McGee on Prophecy? I'll give you the ordering information at the close of today's broadcast. According to Job chapter 40, a conversation occurred between God and Job. Of course, the dialogue is more one-sided as God responds to Job. So a listener in Savannah, Georgia says, in verses 11 through 14, is God rebuking Job for his pride? And I'll turn to chapter 40 and read 11 through 14. God speaking now to Job, cast abroad the rage of thy wrath and behold everyone that is proud and abase him. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together and bind their faces in secret. Then will I also confess unto thee that thine own right hand can save thee. May I say to you, that's exactly what God is doing here. You see, the book of Job is not really the great book on suffering. 
It is the great book on repentance. Job was a good man, and he knew that. Fact of the matter is, he was proud of that. He said he was willing to come before God and believed if he could, he could declare his case and he'd come out clean. And you know, there are a lot of people like that today. We have so much humanism today, and even in average preaching, that a great many people today think that they're going to get into heaven because of how good they are and who they are and even sometimes why they are. But may I say to you that this little book of Job teaches repentance. Now, Job, finally, when God broke through and and dealt with this man personally, here is what he said. And if you turn to the last chapter, chapter 42, and read verses 5 and 6, and will you listen to this? Now, this is Job speaking. He says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. This man, Job, as good a man as he was, and I'm willing to say that he was probably the best man on the earth up to the time of Jesus Christ. He was the best man, had that kind of a life. But this man, when he got into the presence of God, realized that he needed to repent, even abhor himself. Now I say to you, this man had a great deal of self-esteem, and he knew all about self-esteem. But I tell you, when he got into the presence of God, he lost self-esteem. And a great many people today are going on that today, this business of self-esteem, of trying to reach their highest potential, trying to be somebody, you know. My friends, if we could get into the presence of God, we'd be like Job. We'd go down on our faces before him. You were exactly right. The great sin of Job was pride, and he needed to repent. The book of Job shows that the best man on earth needed to repent. Now, if the best man on earth needed to repent, How about you and how about me? The repentance, as we've said before, is certainly a good exercise for Christians. Turning now to Ezekiel 31.18, a listener in Memphis, Tennessee asks, could you please explain the meaning of the trees in Eden? The book of Ezekiel, let me say first of all, is probably the most highly symbolic book in the entire Bible. No book quite transcends it. God used this language to talk to a people that were in captivity, and some of them had not bowed their stiff necks even in captivity. And Ezekiel is sent to speak to them in this highly symbolic language. And I'm going to turn now and read Ezekiel 31, 18. To whom art thou thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? Yet shalt thou be brought down with the trees of Eden unto the lower parts of the earth. Thou shalt lie in the midst of the uncircumcised 
with those who are slain with the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, saith the Lord God. Now, God here is warning Pharaoh that though they be proud people, they're like trees. Remember that God brought down even the trees in the Garden of Eden. You know, the Garden of Eden must have been a beautiful place. In fact, the whole earth was a Garden of Eden. But this particular spot in it must have been very beautiful indeed. And when the curse came upon the earth, you remember that God said, Cursed is the ground. And you'd see those great big trees that were in Eden wither away and rot and fall down. Now, he uses that figure of speech, You are like proud trees. Well, God says, I brought them down in Eden, and I can bring you down also. Highly figurative language, by the way. But I tell you, it certainly was effective. It still is effective, for that matter, if God's people will listen to it even today. It's a great message in Ezekiel. A desperate listener in Houston, Texas, has a difficult question. He says, would I lose my salvation if I committed suicide? Well, if you have your salvation, if you are saved, then you won't lose your salvation. But you can't lose what you don't have. And there's always a question about a suicide, especially if they're in their right mind. And I can't help but believe that the suicide is one that has gone off as a rocker, if you please. That is, he's not rowing but with one oar when he does a thing like that. I believe that the Christian actually contemplates suicide, and there's no sin in that. Martin Luther said, well, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from roosting in your hair. So that temptation, I would think, comes to most people. I know as a young man, before I was saved, I did not see any future for myself at all. My dad had died when I was 14, and I had a job that didn't pay very much, and I didn't see much of a future for me. And naturally, I did, I think, what other young people do. I thought about it. That's all I did is just think about it. And I don't think I could ever been brought to it, even if some crisis had arisen because of the desire to want to live. And I think that's the normal experience. I think one of the tragedies of our school system today There's a lot wrong with it, but one of the things that's radically wrong, that they're not given any motivation today. There is nothing offered to them that ennobles them and lifts them up. Always think of what Douglas MacArthur said, you know, and he came back, the three great words, uh, duty, courage, and loyalty. Those are three things that are not given to young people today at all in school. And as a result, why they have no purpose. And that's one of the reasons we're having the suicides among young people today is that if they were given something worthwhile, this cheap stuff that's being peddled today, this pinko communism that is being handed out, socialism, liberalism today, with its wrong thinking and that sort of thing. And may I say to you, 
if you're a child of God, doing that would be an awful sin, but it would not rob you of your salvation at all. But if you've trusted Christ, you're saved. Are you considering suicide? Do you feel the pressures of life pressing all around you? Or maybe you feel, as Dr. McGee once did, that there's no hope in your future. Well, we know that suicide is a difficult issue to deal with. As Dr. McGee has said, it's hard to know the circumstances which lead a person to take their own life. If you've been thinking about suicide, then we would encourage you to seek help locally from a Bible-believing church, pastor, or counselor who can help you in this area. We may not be able to fully understand your needs, but Scripture provides a story of a man who does. To help you in these distressing times, Dr. McGee has a booklet called Job, A Man Stripped Bear. If you find yourself asking these difficult questions about life and the future, we hope that you'll contact us and order this booklet or go to our website and download a free PDF version. We'd like to remind you that we're continuing Dr. McGee's five-year journey on the Bible bus this week on the Through the Bible radio program that can be heard on this station. If you're not yet a regular passenger on what Dr. McGee called the Bible bus, we invite you to join us. To help you along the way, we provide notes and outlines for each of our studies. We send these out to all who are on our mailing list, so we invite you to send us your request and then join us on Monday. To contact our offices for any of our resources, purchase a CD copy of today's broadcast, or ask to be on the mailing list, call 1-800-65-BIBLE Monday through Thursday from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time, or write to Questions and Answers in the U.S., Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109, for those in Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1, or visit our website at www.ttb.org. Now, until this same time next week, We continue to pray that God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. This program has been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of Through the Bible Radio Network.